uh, the passage, 1 John chapter 7, verses 25 to 52. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not, referring to Jesus, this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. And so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. And so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. That's a strange little conversation. The, the, the kind of the police sent to arrest Jesus came back to those who sent them and they said, where is he? And they said, no one ever taught like him. It's a strange conversation. It's almost as if, and you're right to conclude that they're prevented from doing anything with God's Son unless he permits it. Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Verse 48 but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our Lord judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Isn't it striking how the learned scholar Nicodemus is now viewed so negatively because he is following Jesus? And see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Well, wonderful stuff. Let's uh, pray that God's voice, not mine, will be heard. 
Father, we pray that uh, we will um, faithfully allow your words, Jesus' words, inspired words in Scripture, to speak into every soul and every heart. Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit will take his sword, the Word of God, and be at work in it amongst this group of people and others who are listening. And we ask for that in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, if you have a look at the back of the service sheet, um, you'll see some headings. And that helps us understand this passage, but also, I think, get into this section of John as a whole. Now, the first heading you'll see there, Hatred, Controversy, and Questions Surrounding Jesus. If we were to simply read John chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, and I was to say to you, what sort of atmosphere do you pick up in these chapters as they describe these events in history around six months before Jesus' day? And your answer would be, there is plenty of hatred directed against him. There is all sorts of controversy about who he is. And there are many questions surrounding him. Some positive, some negative. Now, Rog took us through the details of this last uh, Sunday, the hatred, the controversy, the questions surrounding Jesus, and I encourage you to listen uh, to that. There are numerous references, and we're only one-third of the way through John's narrative of Jesus' life and teaching on earth, numerous references to people who want to kill Jesus. That's an odd thing, isn't it? I mean, very few people in the world or in our culture would deny the existence of Jesus as a man. Very few hitherto would have denied his existence, at least in the West, as a great, great moral teacher. Very few would have denied that he was a great example of sacrificial living. And yet, so early on in his public life, People wanted to kill him. And the reason for that hostility is because of his identity as God, as Messiah. And there are, I think, from verse 11 of chapter 7 to the end of the chapter, 19 question marks. Now, please don't count them. You guys can count them. 19 question marks. More than any other section in the Bible. Nineteen of them. Questions. Striking that how in John's Gospel, and indeed the Bible, Jesus does not answer every one of our questions. In the end of the day, he wants us to answer his questions and respond to his invitation on his terms. And if he is God, he has the right to do that. You will never find faith by finding every answer to every question you have. In the end, we need to submit to Jesus' authority because he is God. But there are lots of people in the hostile atmosphere of the days in which Jesus lived on the earth who wanted to believe in him. Many in the crowd, verse 31, believed in him. Verse 26, it's a great verse. Uh, here he is speaking openly, but they said nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities, the crowd said, would they know that he is the Messiah? I think the answer to that is probably they did. But they didn't want him. In verses 40 and 41, when they heard these words, some in the crowd said, he is the prophet, he is the Messiah. Now, standing back and looking at the whole scene, 
what can we draw by way of application? So here we are when Jesus lived on the earth, hatred, controversy, and questions surrounding him. What do we make of that now, say, in our time? Two things. One, this is what happens when the real Jesus is present in the power of his Spirit. So take two churches, or take two Christians. One church living, committed to the living words of Jesus, teaching them, holding them out, holding each other accountable to them, seeking to make progress in gospel vision, seeking to encourage folks in the church in their ordinary lives to share the life-changing news of Jesus. In that church, there will be, or in the context of the church and in the relationships it has in the community and the city and the country and in our lives, there will be controversy and there will be questions and there will be maybe even hard antagonism and there will be people seeking and there will be conversions. There will be life and friction and stuff. But take a commitment to the living words of Jesus out of a church. Take the edge off the simple gospel. Take away gospel vision. Take away evangelism. Take away holding people accountable for how God wants us to live our lives. And what will happen is all the friction and all the tension will go. Think of your own life when the Holy Spirit that lives in you and lives in every Christian is allowed to awake your conscience and have free flow in different areas of your life, that is when all manner of tensions come around your life as a Christian. When we suppress that, then tension goes. I guess... We relish Sunday by Sunday when you all ask us questions and you send me questions and I can't answer them. And I often say, come back next week and I'll try. <laughs> or where people, in a sense, reject Jesus. Or when people become Christians and it's wonderful that that happens. I expect that if we lost our commitment to the Bible and to the Gospel, there would be no questions. There wouldn't be much interest in sermons or correspondence. When Jesus Christ is present in the power of his living spirit, the atmosphere of John 6, 7, and 8 is the atmosphere still. And I guess the second application of that is that if you are committed to the real Jesus, or if a church is committed to the real Jesus, it is dangerous to side with him. Because if you do, there will be muttering and grumbling and people will defame you. They will because they cannot speak well of Jesus and they will not speak well of you. And we're beginning to see the very beginnings of that in our culture. When uh, I was uh, told this week of the result of the pledge process, um, <laughs> I wrote to the elders and I, I said, oh, and I was pleased, I was, but a little unnerved. 
a little unnerved because, you know, we said we needed, and there are a million spreadsheets go into getting that figure, 33,648, and then the figure comes 33,639. What do you make of that? Well, I've learned to distrust coincidences. And I'm not the kind of guy who would look around for kind of signs of what God is doing. He works pragmatically and practically. But it is striking, isn't it? If that unnerves you, so it should. If it wonderfully encourages you, so it should. What, though, got to me, in a sense, is if that allows us, and we needed to know if we had adequate financial resources to plan a church, because if we don't, then you've got to ask, well, there's a practical way for God to say no. Immediately I thought, for Sam and his team, and they meet this afternoon, that a new church in a place in the city where there aren't living churches is going to bring you, Sam, and your team, John chapters 6, 7, and 8 in atmosphere. But with that glorious, glorious transformation in people's lives. This is real. Now, the second point, Jesus' authority. He establishes his authority in all sorts of ways in these chapters in John's gospel or in that period of history. Uh, he does it by claiming equality with God, chapter 5, and uh, he does it through I am statements. I am is the name God uses of himself. Who shall I say? Moses says, sent me. Tell him, I am sent you. Jesus says, I am, chapter 6, the bread of life. Next Time after half term, I am the light of the world. I am. The name God uses for himself, Jesus uses for himself, for he is equal with God. And here in chapter 7, he, he, he comes at the establishing of his authority in a different way. Read with me from verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is not this man whom they are trying to kill? And here he is speaking openly but they say nothing to it. Can it be that the authorities really know that he is the Messiah? I think the answer is yes, and frighteningly so. But there is something comes to the crowd's mind which proves to their way of thinking that he can't be the Christ. Verse 27, Yet we know where this man is from. They knew he is from Nazareth in Galilee, but when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. And that's what they'd been taught by the rabbis, and I guess some Old Testament prophecies like Malachi that the Messiah would come suddenly to his temple. No one will know where he's from. And if they think he is from anywhere, there is no way he'd come from a place like Nazareth in Galilee. Now, when I was a young and inexperienced preacher, many years ago, I uh, made a, a suggestion as to which towns in Scotland would be the modern-day equivalents of Nazareth and Galilee. And found to my... Uh, error that uh, somebody came from there, somebody thought it was the nicest place on earth, and uh, so I'm not going to make any suggestions today. But the, the point, that Nazareth was the last place on earth that the Messiah would come from. Uh, and of course, the, the, the richness of the theology of that is the humility of his surroundings and upbringing. And uh, but they say, well, he can't be Jesus because he doesn't, he can't come from, he can't be the Messiah, he can't come from Galilee. How does Jesus respond? Verse 28, he proclaimed, You know me and you know where I am from. 
Yes, you are right at one level, I am from Nazareth. But I have not come on my own, but the one who sent me is true, and you do not know him. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. And one of the big themes in John's gospel and in Jesus' own ministry is to establish the fact that he came from heaven. He is a man, but he is God who came from glory and took on humility and went through death and resurrection and back to glory where he lives and reigns now. Now, with that as our backdrop, we are on to point uh, three. I was uh, saying to people in the first service that in my 20-odd years of ministry, I've never managed to give equal amounts of time to the three points in a talk and never enough time to point three. But today is the first time ever we're going to get to point three because that's the key bit of this passage with plenty of time. Now, let's read these uh, words again, words of wonderful invitation. And it's worth, as we read them, my temptation in reading them is to kind of lower my voice and to speak them quietly and lovingly, to try and evoke the way that Jesus spoke them. But what John tells us is that Jesus stood up, and rabbis don't stand up, they sit to teach, and he shouts these words. Striking, isn't it? He shouts out these words in the middle of all the clamor and the questions. He shouts out to the crowd. On the last day of the festival, verse 37, the great day, while Jesus was standing there, he shouted out, cried out, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me, and let the one who believes in me drink. As the scripture has said, out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, which believers in him were to receive, but as yet there was no Spirit, because Jesus was not yet glorified. What a marvelous, wonderful invitation that is. And surprisingly, in John's Gospel, John doesn't say much. It's just a few verses, because we've been here before in the Gospel. Remember chapter 2, when he turned water into wine? And then chapter 4, just flick back in your Bibles to chapter 4 and verse uh, 7. Chapter 4 and verse 7. Let me read verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. A simple question, a simple request. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and Jesus himself is the gift of God, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you wouldn't have said, give me a drink of water. You would have said, give me living water. Now, she doesn't understand at this point. What Jesus is saying is the right question to ask of me is not give me water or give me food. Give me you. Give me you. I need you. Your spirit. Your flesh. Your death. Your life. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, 
everyone who drinks of this water in the well will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Jesus uses simple, simple metaphors. If you go home and have a drink for lunch, you'll get thirsty by tea time. If you drink what I can give you, spiritually you will never thirst again. And that wonderful promise in verse 14 of uh, chapter 4, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's what the Spirit coming into us means. Eternal life, everlasting life. Now nothing in this world, in our mortal bodies, without Christ comes anywhere near that. The woman said to him, verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come and draw water. And the narrative goes on and she doesn't understand. Uh, quickly, let's go back to chapter uh, 7. So John in intends us to remember uh, that. Just to, to encourage you, it does really show the benefits of just reading a gospel. The way that we kind of preach and teach the Bible, John chapter 4 was about 18 months ago when we did John last. Now, you see, it's just, just over our shoulder. He's already spoken about living water. Now he's back on his theme. Now, what's going on in chapter 7 is the Feast of Tabernacles. You'll see that in chapter uh, 7, verse uh, uh, 2. The Jews' feast of booths or tabernacles was at hand. And then in the pivot verses, verse 37, on the last day of the feast of booths or tabernacles. Right, let me give you a bit of background so we can understand. The feast of booths or tabernacles was held in the autumn, lasting eight days, and everyone traveled to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage. The point of the feast, to remember how God had provided for his people in their wilderness journeys after he led them out of slavery in Egypt to the promised land of Canaan. And the Feast of Tabernacles, or booths, remembered and celebrated how God had provided shelter for them, the kind of Old Testament equivalent of tents, that's what they were, shelter for them and bread for them to eat, and water for them to drink, and light to guide them through the wilderness. Now, stand back if you've been around in our studies in John's Gospel. He provided shelters for them. He provided bread for them. He provided water for them. If you're thinking back to John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He is the fulfillment of that. If you're thinking ahead to John chapter 8, after a half term, I am the light of the world. And now I am the living water. It's all coming true in this man, Jesus. Now that's what the Feast of Booths was to celebrate. And people would come up to Jerusalem and they would live in tents around Jerusalem and there would be ceremonies of, of water being brought from the Kidron Brook up to the altar and poured on the altar and so on and so forth. And uh, the feast remembered that. But like the Passover, the Feast of Booths uh, 
there was a kind of winsome bit in the celebration every year when the priest would say, one day, one day the Messiah will come. And he will say, I will give you spiritual bread that will last for eternity. I will give you water. Spiritual life. One day. Now on the last day of the festival, verse 37, that year, the great day, it was a Sabbath day, and the kind of ceremonial stuff was just extraordinary. Uh, the procession would have gone to the Kidron Valley, to the Kidron Brook, and up to the temple, and the priests would have poured the, the barrels of water over the altar. They would have walked around it seven times, and at the end of it, like at the end of all great festivals, they went home. It's kind of stunned silence. The water has gone. The Messiah has not yet come. They were still thirsty. They were still waiting. But on this last day of the feast, something spectacular happened. Jesus stood up and shouted, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me. Full of anguish, intensity and emotion. We tend to think of the words of invitation from Jesus and the way we preachers articulate them, we often do so in a kind of winsome way, in a gentle way, and that's right. But Jesus, Jesus speaks the words of invitation to people's souls with an urgency. He shouts at us, lest we don't hear. Come to me. I will satisfy your spiritual. What Jesus is saying then, and he's saying still, is there anyone here? Is there anyone here in this group of people this morning? Is there anyone here who is still thirsty? Is there anyone here who has, has come to, to this ritual, which is coming into a building and sitting in rows, not the front one, for years? And he has heard my invitation, but you're still thirsty. Is there anyone here who is still thirsty? You see, all the drama, the religion, the liturgy, the rites of the Old Testament scriptures, and we have our own version of the drama, the liturgy, the religion, and the rites, all of our own. Evangelical churches have lots of drama and religion and liturgy and rites like anyone else. Jesus is saying to you, Look, I, 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 that's all fine, but uh, is anyone thirsty still? Is anyone still longing for what you see others have around you? Are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? Often our thirst is at its most parched when issues come along in life, bereavement, illness, loss of a job, anxiety, whatever. Often we do not know where the thirst comes from. Maybe it's when other stuff just doesn't satisfy in the end. And Jesus says to us, if anyone is thirsty, and what does coming to him mean? It means believing in him. It means trusting him. It means leaning our weight on him. It means taking 
into ourselves from Christ, his power, his presence, his peace, and the person of his Holy Spirit. And what happens when you come to him thirsty, recognizing your spiritual needs and longing for satisfaction? Well, a new power comes into you, the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and John later on is quite clear that when you come to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, the very coming to him is an action of the Holy Spirit that leads you to him. When you say, yes, Jesus, I will believe, the Holy Spirit comes into your heart at the time that you say it. The Holy Spirit is yours from conversion, all of him. The Holy Spirit is not a force, it's a person. It's Jesus living in you, and at that moment into your life will flow streams of living water. That's the image. And it's like a, a, a spring or a geezer inside of your soul that one day will well up into everlasting life. Not a stream, streams of living water. That's real Christianity. It is coming to Jesus lost and undone and asking him to fill us with a fullness to live his life through us as streams of living water. That's what that Roma man said in his testimony. Fullness in Jesus. Now let me encourage you, I am a glass half-empty minister, a glass half-empty Christian. It is the most wonderful, wonderful thing in the world to know Jesus. I'm not the kind of guy who would say that. I could not live another day. I could not see what I see and not know Jesus. Now, just a couple more things and we're done. It's not coincidental that in John's Gospel exclusively, and only John, we're told that when the soldier pierced Jesus' side, you know, the spear was taken to Jesus' side, what flowed out of his side? Blood and water. Blood and water in John. Blood flowed out of Jesus' side to forgive our sins. Water flowed out of his side after he had died, after he had said, it is finished as a sign that the Holy Spirit would come and pour into us living water. When Moses went to God and said, God, the people are thirsty. God said to Moses, smite a rock, hit a rock with your staff, and waters will flow. And what did God do to Jesus on the cross? He smote him. It's the language of the prophecies. He smote him. And blood flowed and water flowed out of Jesus' body. And then lastly, turn with me to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, verses 28 and 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. I thirst. A jar full of sour wine vinegar stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. I thirst. I thirst is in fulfillment of Scripture, but surely in John's Gospel there is a rich line running through his Gospel. Chapter 2, Jesus changed water into the new wine of his kingdom. 
chapter 4, Jesus said to that woman, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Everyone who drinks of the water that the world offers will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will will never thirst again. And then John 7, on the last day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And, And on the cross, you see what's going on? Jesus cried, I thirst. You see what's happening in John's gospel? It's substitution. He cried, I thirst, that we might never thirst. Jesus was parched, that we might not be parched. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. I thirst, Jesus said, that you can have this life-giving water. I am parched so that water will pour out of my body into yours. I thirst that you will never thirst again. Now, there is an urgency to all of this. We need to respond to Jesus' invitation. You can see it there in verses 32 to 36. Quickly, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple police to arrest him. Jesus said to them, I will be with you a little longer. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now, of course, he's talking about his departure. But surely, as we hear these words, we need to bear in mind the the, the urgency of this passage. I will no longer be with you. There will come a time when Jesus won't speak to us anymore. One of the misunderstandings in the Christian life is that Jesus needs you and me. He doesn't. He wants you and me. He doesn't need us, though. He wants us. And these words are haunting. You will search for me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And remember, he shouts out, come to me. He shouts it out. Well, I think we're discovering in John's Gospel the real Jesus. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to know him. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for uh, John's Gospel, this account of Jesus' life and ministry. Thank you for bringing us face to face with the real Jesus, the real Jesus, the one who came from above to this earth and lived and died and was raised to everlasting life and where he reigns victorious. Help us, Lord, to hear the words, come to me, that we might drink and freely live, that we might find soul satisfaction and atonement and forgiveness. Help us not to play light or footloose with Jesus' invitation. What a wonderful, wonderful thing it is to know him. Help us, Lord, to sing these truths now with sincere hearts, for we ask that in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.